Welcome to the Auditorium, a portal to the fringes of culture. <coughs> Dr. Bramwell. Dr. Bramwell. My dear Mountfield, if I've told you once, I've told you a thousand times. Do not interrupt me when I'm practising listening to my violin on my phone. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm so, I'm so sorry. Um, sorry about that. It's just, I've, I've got it. Uh, I'm really stumped on this crossword clue, and I was wondering if you could help. Can you pass my pipe? Yes, of course. It's maybe a, a two-pipe problem. The crack or the normal? There we are. Um, I was wondering about this. It, 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 it was a five, four, two... Um, uh, an arboreal citrus... Provider, arboreal citrus provider. Is it um, is one one five four? One five four. Sorry, yeah, one five four. A lemon tree, my dear Mountfield. Oh, of course, thank you, Doctor Bramwell. That's lovely. And there's another one here. I'm sorry. Um, a section of the digestive tract. Uh, that's just seven, I think. Elementary. Oh, my dear God. Mountfield. It's simple. It's obvious when you see it, isn't it? There we go. Um, one last one here, uh, Dr. Brown. Well, it's, it's five five. A burglar disturbed. A burglar disturbed. I'm absolutely stumped. Alarm entry, Alarm my dear entry. Mr. Mountfield. You are good. You are good. You know what? You're difficult to live with. You spend a lot of time withdrawn and taking cocaine. But other than that, you are you, you're a very brainy fella. Are you, are you accusing me of having some kind of uh, mental disorder, Mr. Well, Mountfield? I wouldn't call it that exactly, but you seem to be, you know, there's a, there's a lot going on, isn't there? There's a lot going on with you. Well, yeah, I'd say yes. All right, then, yes. I think you do need... I think you maybe need a few counselling sessions. If we wanted to get into the psychology of um, of a certain fictional consulting detective... Yes. ...say Sherlock Holmes... Well, yes, why not? We could listen to the podcast of Laurie Bull. I like it. I like it a lot. Let's do it. This was recorded at the Catalyst Club, and uh, Laurie Bull is a speaker who spent a lot of her time going around on cruise ships uh, giving talks and um, when she first got in touch um, to, to perform this live she gave me a list of about 20, 20 different subjects that she does and this was the one that stood out as being the most uh, fascinating for me well, well let's I'm just kind of go back a tiny bit there there is a cruise ship lecture circuit yeah, yeah. Should we look into this? <laughs> this is big money. So it's two. Well, no, it's no money, but it's it's you get it's, you get a two weeks free cruise, and you only have to give four four fifteen minute talks. That, what what are we no. wasting our time on this? Let's let's turn it off. Come on, let's get that free cruise. That's right. fantastic. Let's go. Yeah. Me first. Good evening, everybody. I want to first of all have a look. There's been a lot of speculation about whether Sherlock Holmes has got a mental illness or not. And we all know in these, this day and age, lots of people are labelled with lots of different conditions. And I want to first of all look at the possibility and, and why people are speculating about his, his mental health. If you think about when we classify people with mental illness, we use two things, the, either, either the ICD or the DSM, they're the statistical manuals for classifying mental health. And there's lots of questions and you tick them and if you get more ticks than not, then you've probably got the condition. Uh, and this is, 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 is a sort of arbitrary you know, in many ways. I mean, there are some very obvious things. But if you've got the condition, then you would probably be considered 
abnormal, not in the sense of a, a, a negative sense, but statistically abnormal, because most people don't have that condition. But when we look at statistically abnormal people, what are we really looking at? I mean, Holmes would certainly be considered abnormal because he is different from the norm. He is unusual. But so was Picasso and Beethoven, and so are gold medal athletes, but we don't consider they have a mental illness. So where Sherlock Holmes is concerned, was he mad or was he eccentric? Well, that's actually quite an easy one to answer. If you're poor, you're mad. If you're rich, you're eccentric. <laughs> so Holmes was probably eccentric. But we'll have a look at some of the conditions that have been attributed to uh, Holmes. He's been called a psychopath. Now, this is interesting, and in fact, in the BBC series, the uh, character of Holmes actually contradicted that and said, no, he wasn't a psychopath, he was a functioning sociopath. Well, actually, that's wrong, because we don't use the word sociopath anymore. We don't talk about sociopaths, we might talk about psychopaths, but we'd be more likely to talk about dissociative personality disorder. It's not quite as catchy, I don't think. But Holmes was not a psychopath. The criteria, he doesn't fit the criteria. I mean, he appears to be cold and calculating, yes. Yes, but he wasn't. He could show remorse. He had a conscience. He had a sense of, of what was right and wrong. He could form lasting relationships. So he didn't fit the criteria. And he could demonstrate empathy. But more than anything else, I've yet to meet a psychopath that actually admits they're a psychopath. So he didn't fit it. If you want a psychopath, I mean, you could look at James Bond. Um, he cold-bloodedly killed people without any thought. In fact, with a little bit of humour as well. It's also been said that he might be autistic. Yeah, he shows some qualities we assume are associated with autism or the Asperger spectrum. The fundamental quality of it is called mind blindness. So it's a difficulty of understanding what people feel or think. Now, if Holmes had this, would he be able to solve his cases? I don't think so. He's not going to be able to deduce what's going on and solve his cases if he was autistic. So I don't think we can classify him as that. And also Holmes is quite capable of emotionally manipulating people, which is something you would rarely see in autistic or people with Asperger's. So I don't think that label fits. OCD. Um, yeah, you could say that Holmes is OCD. He's certainly obsessed when he's on a case. I mean, he's running around like a mad thing and totally obsessed with everything that's going on. He wasn't particularly compulsive. Yes, he had interests, but that's not how we classify obsessive-compulsive. Obsessive-compulsive is classified that people are obsessed, they have irrational thoughts. Now, Holmes was always rational. That's the one thing he always was. So we, won't, we couldn't classify him as, as obsessive on the obsessive-compulsive. And the compulsions are usually there to get rid of those irrational thoughts. Well, not for Holmes. He was rational. He liked those thoughts. He was going with it. He was solving cases. Um, he says there's periods of intense engagement, challenges with the case. That's where he was obsessed, when he was on a case. And those periods of intense engagement have made people suppose that he might have bipolar disorder. Now, he fits this one probably better than anything else because he was either really high or really low. He was manically running around solving cases or he was down and he had black moods. Um, but the thing with bipolar disorder, and there are varying degrees, of course, and I'm sure we've all, uh, like we've all been obsessed with things when we've been interested in them, we have all have moods, highs and lows, and sometimes they're higher than others and sometimes they're lower than others. But the thing with bipolar disorder, which makes me believe Holmes didn't have it, is, again, they, 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 they have this elevated sense, but they have um, no real control over it, and Holmes was very much in control. 
very much. When he was on a high, he knew he was on a high, and he knew why he was on the high. Um, they have delusions of grandeur. Well, you could say Holmes has that. I mean, he thinks he's got special powers and he's wonderful. Well, he actually has, hasn't he? So it's not a delusion there. Um, and the depression side, and this is where he really doesn't tick the boxes, because the depression side, when people with uh, bipolar disorder get depressed, they feel worthless. Now, I don't think we could ever accuse Holmes of feeling worthless. That's just not his style. But why have people been so ready to diagnose Holmes? Um, with a mental illness. Well, for that, we need to look at Conan Doyle and how he devised this character. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, he was a doctor, he was born in Scotland. Um, he was a very intelligent man. Um, he studied medicine at Edinburgh, um, and he started writing about Holmes uh, around 1885. Now, the interesting thing about uh, Conan Doyle, I think, he was actually an unsuccessful doctor. He didn't make much money. In fact, his annual income never really exceeded £300, which actually wasn't a lot. And um, he, he submitted a tax return, and the tax return came back from the tax inspector, who scrawled across it, most unsatisfactory. <laughs> Doyle sent it back with written across it, I entirely agree. <laughs> but I don't know about you, but I'm grateful he wasn't very successful, because if he had been, he wouldn't have written the books. I mean, he did say after he'd been, had his practice open a few weeks and not a single patient had come in, he wrote to his mother and said, well, at least it gives me more time to write. So I'm quite grateful. But his medical practice and his medical training really helped him a lot with the character of Holmes um, and also with Dr. Watson. But if we look at Holmes, we all know, single man, educated at Cambridge, got a brother called Mycroft, etc., etc., self-employed detective. He was based on somebody called Joseph Bell, who was one of um, Doyle's lecturers at the university. He was also a medic. And you can see that's a picture of Joseph, Joseph Bell, even the, the deerstalker hat is there. Um, and he wrote that to him. I most certainly owe to you, Sherlock Holmes. And I think Joseph Bell, it was, it was about his, his ability to diagnose and deduce different situations, his logical, rational mind that impressed Doyle so much. And that's the character, the start of the character of Holmes, and that's where he, he, he began with it. And I think that's, that, that's quite interesting because they were both medics. And it's at a time when science was on the rise and people were looking for scientific explanations. Holmes' methods, this is another, another um, situation which is uh, indicative of its time and science being in the rise. Um, Holmes' methods was called the, the Morelli method, and it was devised by somebody called Giovanni Morelli, who was also a medic, but he was also an art critic. And he actually devised a method of looking at the way artists work, etc. And what he looked at was the minute detail. How did they put together these tiny details to form a whole picture. And that was the method. And it's mentioned in, Holmes, uh, in the stories of Holmes. It's also mentioned in Freud's writing, who was, again, uh, around at that time, getting his theories out into the open and being published. But Holmes and emotions. And I think this is quite an interesting one, because even Doyle wrote to Bell saying that Holmes was inhuman and a calculator and, and didn't have emotions. And yet he put emotions into the books. There were emotions there. I mean, Holmes, in, in one of the stories, says love is an emotional thing and, and it's not rational and I'm not interested in it because it interferes with my logic and my rationality. But he did have emotions. He did display emotions. He just had them under a great deal of control. Now, I said Freud was around at the time promoting his, his theories of personality. And if you look at the, the um, Sherlock Holmes stories, and Conan Doyle would have been aware of this because 
Conan Doyle would have been reading the research. And I mean, he studied in Vienna as an eye surgeon. So he might not have met Freud, but he would have been aware of his work and been, and been reading around it. And if we look at this, I mean, the Freudian idea of the id, this is the base instincts, the pleasures, um, out of control, just do what you want when you want. That's the id. And I suspect that that's Moriarty. And then the ego. This is reason and logic, and this is what controls the id. So he gave that to Holmes. And the superego, which is the moral, social conscience, he gave that to Watson. Now, Freud did say we should have all three of these to make a whole person. It should be in the one person. But I suspect that Doyle had read about this, and he gave those three areas, those three characters, those main ideas. So the connection with Freud um, on that one. And as I said, they were all working at the same time, all reading each other's theories. Holmes and his cocaine habit. Yeah, this is the good one, isn't it? Um, yeah, seven percent solution intravenously. Now, anybody that knows anything about drugs knows that's a very high dose. It's a very high dose. Um, and Holmes took cocaine when he was bored. He was unstimulated and totally bored, and so that's when he took his cocaine to stimulate his brain. He needed it because his boredom was too much. Now he had a very high intellect. Why did Doyle uh, give him a cocaine habit? Well, Doyle not only knew professionally about these things, and he also knew professionally about mental illnesses. He also knew personally about it. His father was an alcoholic who died in a mental institution. But there's that, but there's also the fact that um, Conan Doyle went to a hospital in Vienna where a guy called Kohler was, uh, had been practicing, and he was the one that introduced cocaine as a medication. It was deemed to be the wonder drug of the age and it was prescribed as a medication. But it makes him that bit interesting, and it makes him a little bit fallible, because Doyle had created this wonder man, this superman, who could do all these wonderful things, who was highly intelligent. So he gave him a little flaw. And also, as I said, his own father was an alcoholic. So obviously there were some issues there that he knew about and was working through. It concerned Watson, of course, but then Watson was the social conscience. He was the superego. So what's wrong with Holmes? Well, in my opinion, nothing at all. I think he's fantastic. Um, an alternative diagnosis is bored. He gets bored easily. When he's working, he's fantastic, but he gets bored easily. So how can we stop him from getting bored? Because when he gets bored, he takes the cocaine and he knows it's not good for him. But, you know, he needs to take it because he's bored. Well, I mean, as you can see there, in one of the, the, the stories, Sherlock's there saying, for me, there is still the cocaine bottle. Now, probably over therapy, he'd prefer that, but really not good for him. So we need to find him a new case. Sherlock Holmes always needs a new case to get him out of that cycle. I think we've found a case for Holmes to get him off the cocaine. As I was coming in tonight, I bumped into a guy, and he was a very suspicious-looking guy. He'd sort of got a black hat and cape on, and, he, he, you know, I wasn't very sure about him. I mean, he said his name was David, but I thought, well, fine. But he was getting off the number nine bus to Utopia. And I thought, that's a very strange thing to do. So I thought, well, you know, is this a case that we need to look at? Is this strange man coming off this bus, you know, with this big cape swaying in? Maybe. It's the return of Moriarty. So we have a case for Sherlock. Thank you. Laurie Bull there on the psychology of Sherlock Holmes. I'm guessing a talk like that has mm. come about, Mr. Matfield, because of the BBC adaptation and uh, in, in which... I think oh, with uh, Dominic uh, Cucumber Patch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
First, let's discuss one thing. I, I, I think that essentially what Watson and Holmes are, they're nerds. We, let's not go with the, the standard, well, they're a gay couple thing, but essentially they're, they're crime nerds. He's a crime nerd. He, he's, he's, like, oh, he's like a twitcher, basically, isn't he? He hears of a, of a crime that's interesting and he immediately rushes to the scene. So he's, he's, just, a, he's just sort of somewhere on a, a mild Asperger's spectrum, I think. There's nothing worse with him than that, I would say. An obsessive, you know? yeah. Yeah, he's an obsessive. He's a slight nerd. That's all there is. There's nothing wrong with the man, you know. And a positive bonus to Lestrade, isn't he, I would have thought. <laughs> Lestrade must never solve anything by himself. <laughs> I, Depend I'm, upon him. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of the books and... Mm. I think one of the most delightful elements of of, of the character and, and the setup was the way that Conan Doyle presents these stories as if as if Holmes is is real, and as a consequence, you know, overseas readers, you know, back in the Victorian Edwardian times, you know, believed that Holmes had really and they'd, they'd write to Baker Street, and they still do, they still do. But one of the one of the very clever devices that Conan Doyle used in in later years, and also partly when I think he got a little bit bored with the character and, the, and, and was repeating the plots. There's an episode where Watson goes to visit uh, um, Sherlock Holmes in Sussex when he's, he's, he's retired as a, as a beekeeper. And, and Holmes has been going back through some of the old stories and finding the errors in these stories, which is clearly Conan Doyle Re- sort of, realising yeah, the yes. mistakes that he's made in earlier work, uh, yes. but he can blame his character for this. So, 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 he's, so he's, had, he's had fan letters going, in episode 23, yeah. you clearly declared that the sign of four, was, yes, yeah. of course, uh, and, that's perfect. And, and Holmes is chastising Watson for yeah. the misspelling of llama in the <laughs> empty house. So when, when, when Holmes, you know, dies, dies, supposedly dies in the Reichenbach Falls episode and then there's a long right. gap and then he returns in the empty house and he tells Watson that he'd spent a year um, living with a llama um, and, <laughs> and Holmes is chastising Watson going, yes, um, to the readers, I spent a year living with a, a hairy quadruped. Um, you really must check your spelling, Watson. And it's beautiful because this is Conan Doyle, you know, okay, sidestepping yes, his listened, own... I've listened to your mental complaints and I'm correcting them all now. Yeah. People seem to focus... And, and, and Holmes is a classic one for obsessives to focus on. They love, they love it. They absolutely love trying to find all sorts of, of, of things there, which frankly... I, as she says, it's probably just a way of paying for his unsuccessful medical business. You know? <laughs> in, indeed, indeed. Well, I think I think uh, Watts, Watson's war wound, uh, his 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 knee wound, was it a knee or, or th- I can't remember. Any, anyway, it, it moves leg <laughs> th- throughout the books, right. uh, and then also disappears as well because he in the, in the very first. I'm obviously showing my my uh, um, my say. obsession here, but uh, he's quite severely wounded in the, uh, in the left first, stroke right leg. Yeah, 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 and and quite lethargic and unable to function properly. But it all kind of clears up by the second or third book. But what is your favourite non-canonical uh, version of, of Holmes and Watson? Obviously, there's The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes, which is a fantastic Billy Wilder film, mm. uh, which is terrific, but obviously not from the stories. What's your favourite one that's that's there's, been subsequently made up? There's two. There's The 7% Solution. I don't know who wrote this, but it's also been made into a film. It's a wonderful story about Holmes meeting Freud, right. and Freud psychoanalyses. Holmes, right. and it is, uh, I was going to say it's suggested, it, it's actually it's not, it, it's made clear in the story that Holmes has made Moriarty his arch nemesis in his mind. Moriarty is actually uh. a rather lovely maths lecturer, but because of, of childhood issues, Holmes has, uh, has created this whole imaginary story in his head, and that it's rather beautifully done. In terms of humour, 
the John Cleese, The Strange Case of the End of Civilization as We Know It, which was made in the early 70s with Arthur Lowe as a brilliantly funny Dr. Watson, obviously playing the stupid card. Incredibly uh, well. Yeah. It's a brilliant performance. Uh, but very hard to find, isn't it? Is it possible? Is it on YouTube or anything like that? Or it it may well be. I was, I was fortunate enough to... Well, first of all, a friend of mine found a copy of, in a bargain bucket in a supermarket in Denmark uh, <laughs> uh, many, many years ago and sent me a copy with, with subtitles, but done in English. So... I was lucky enough back in the late 90s to go to a John Cleese-hosted night, and it was on his rare material. Right. So they showed The Strange Case of the End of Civilization as we know it. They showed the sequel, which is even rarer, where Willie Rushton plays Dr. Watson. And it's The Strange Case of of the Death of the 47 Accountants, who are all found (laughs) with a knife in their back in their office one afternoon. I'd love to see that. Um, And it ends up, um, one of them ends up on an episode of Call My Bluff, um, brought on (laughs) as an exhibit. But anyway, and John Cleese was there. And he gave a Q&A at the end. And what a difficult man. He, he, pulled, he pulled apart all of this work. You know, the audience loved it. You could see there were flawed, you know, there were, there were yeah. flawed bits of comedy, but good comedy and a real treat to see. And, yeah, Cleese was a hard man, a hard man. He found it very hard to enjoy mm. watching this work that he'd created because he, all he could do was find, find fault in it. And it got to a point where you could sense in the audience, we wished he'd leave. Yeah, yeah, um, so that we spoiling could, your own stop, stuff. Exactly, yeah, yeah. exactly. But mm. they are, they're really worth, worth um, seeking out those two because they are curious for the, for, the, for the Holmes and Watson fans. Well, there we are. And what do we think of the Dominic uh, Cucumber Patch version? I love the, uh, the the casting of of him and um, Martin Freeman in that. I think I find the plots way too convoluted. I just wish they'd give us a good story without all of the clever sub subtext. My, my main problem is that uh, not even the iPhone six can give you information that quickly. Uh, that, that really annoys me. Plus, he's supposed to have it up in his head. Grr. But there uh, we go. To, to conclude, I have my own. Coming back to to Laurie Bull's talk, I have my own theory as to if you were to characterize Holmes I'd put him down as a trickster because I've done a bit of research mm. into into the role of the trickster and the trickster is is defined as amoral and I think that Holmes's morality is is in question at times because he takes cases not out of sympathy but just because he likes doing the cases he doesn't really care mm. um, about the um, the issues that you know that the client brings to him the emotional issues he's apolitical he has no interest in politics. He leaves it to his, his brother Mycroft. In fact, he's quite sniffy about politics and about royalty and about hierarchy in society. Yeah. And he, he uses cunning and deceit as his tools as, a, as an artist, as the artist being, being you know, a consulting detective. So for me, the, the closest characterization of Holmes is the trickster. I don't know if you agree. Uh, I agree for the purposes of this podcast. Yeah, so he's Loki, basically. <laughs> <laughs> well, element. But you see, element. But you, well, there's, no, there's, but you see I think he's a moral agency. I don't I'd quite agree with that because I think uh, in the author's hands he may appear that, but he's he's uniformly fighting on the side of right. He's a moral agency. He may not have the right motivations, but it's almost as if he's one person. Holmes and Watson make up a whole person. They make up sort of the, the um, emotional, intuitive, warm side, which is Watson, and the kind of the obsessive trickster, which is Holmes. I think that's the, the dilemma. I think it's, they are put together a single person, and I think they yeah. almost uniformly are out to right wrongs. So I don't know if it's that simple. I am oversimplifying. <laughs> uh, but, but, but equally, Holmes and his best adversaries have mutual respect for each other, which is which is a characteristic of the trickster. Yeah. So, and I know, oh, yeah, you're right. Holmes would never go to the dark side in the way that um, Darth Vader 
did. Um, is he a trickster? I, no, no, no. Death I'm, Star I'm is mixing, a big joke. I'm mixing, me- metaphor- <laughs> <All right. laughs> mixing metaphors here. Um, but there's mutual respect. I think they both, both Holmes and his adversaries, admire the the cunning and and the tricks and the deceit that they employ. Um, right. to get their results and that that's an element let's say there's an there's an element yeah, of the trickster. means to an end yeah, yeah. No, fair enough okay so that leads us neatly to our competition we'd like to challenge our listeners to write their own brand new sherlock holmes mystery yes yes but using only 140 characters only 140 characters we don't want it as, as a as a as a tweet though we want it no we, want we just want write it, it in r- please write it to in. to the usual address which, which is, is uh, mr matfield and dr bramwell auditorium podcast england um, stick a stamp on and that should that should get to us. That should get there. Please. And the best ones we will um, use for, for our, our own devices. Own yeah. We're not yeah. going to We're not going to read them out. No. no. The Auditorium is presented by Dr. David Bramwell and Mr. David Mountfield. The producers are Lance Dan and Andrew Mayling. You can discover more about the show at oddpodcast.com where you can find out about upcoming events and festival shows. If you'd like to give a talk about something that you're passionate about, then email us at contact at oddpodcast.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at oddpodcastuk. Talks from the Auditorium are featured in Earnest Journal, a magazine for the curious and adventurous. If you like the Auditorium, then please leave a review for us on iTunes. iTunes.